All right, hi everyone. Welcome to LSE for this online event entitled 100 Great Black Britons, hosted by LSE Embrace, LSE's Black and Minority Ethnic Staff Network. This event is part of LSE's Black History Month program of events uh, in the month of October. My name is Jeffrey Thomas, and I'm an assistant professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very pleased and here to welcome Angelina Osborne, um, who will be discussing her book, along uh, by her and her co-author, Patrick Vernon, uh, authors of the newly released book, 100 Great Black Britons, uh, to the LSE today. I'd like to share a bit of, more about the background of the two authors. So Angelina is an independent researcher and heritage consultant. She received her PhD in history from the Wilberforce Institute for the Study of Slavery and Emancipation, University of Hall in 2014. Her interests focus on Caribbean enslavement and pro-slavery discourses and the history of community and education activism. Patrick Vernon, uh, her co-author, uh, is a Clarence Winston Churchill Fellow, a fellow at the Imperial War Museum, a fellow at the Royal Historical Society, uh, and a former fellow for the Department of History of Medicine at Warwick University. Patrick was awarded an OBE for 2012 for his work tackling health inequalities for ethnic minority communities in Britain. Since 2010, he's been leading a campaign for Windrush Day and in the 2018 kickstarted campaign for the amnesty for the Windrush generation as part of the Windrush scandal, uh, which led to a government U-turn in immigration policies. So today this event will take place in a conversational format, format uh, requested as requested by speakers. I've prepared a list of questions to ask our speakers so they can share more about the 100 great Black Britons and more about the work that they do to empower Black people in the UK and beyond. We'll have a conversation for about 30 minutes with the authors. And from there, we'll open up the questions to the audience. Uh, to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Uh, questions will be submitted to myself and I'll pose as many questions as possible to the speakers given the time constraints. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We're particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni uh, as well as incoming students. There's an opportunity to vote for specific questions that you would like to hear the answers to as well. So please use that. And this will help us to select questions uh, to ask to the speakers. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Black History Month. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made into a podcast. As I mentioned before, there is a book that is attached to this event, uh, 100 Great Black Britons. So please purchase your copy uh, at the pages of Hackney website uh, or other places where these books are sold. A link will be shared in the Zoom chat later in the event. But now I'm delighted to begin our conversation. Welcome, Angelina, and congratulations on all the great success. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting us to speak today. Great. So I think the history of how this, this 100 Great Black Britons list, uh, how it arose is very interesting. So can you tell us about the history of the other lists that preceded it and why this list was so important? And in, in essence, why did you write the book? Okay, so um, uh, first, before the book was uh, came into existence, uh, we did a, a campaign back in 2003. Um, the campaign was really a response to what, what actually had happened in 2002. Uh, in 2002, the BBC had um, led a national campaign to find out who was the greatest Britain of all time and had invested considerable resources in putting together uh, nominations, a, a national poll, as well as about 10 uh, programs which were broadcast over uh, two weeks. Um, each program was about an hour long 
and was presented by a celebrity uh, who argued the case of 10 of 10 of these uh, great Britons, uh, reasons why they should be voted greatest Britain of all time. Um, what we noticed about the, the list, the list of 100 people that uh, had been nominated by the British public, was that there was only one, only one person uh, who was of African or Asian descent, and that person was Freddie Mercury, uh, the former lead singer of Queen, who, is, uh, who was born in Zanzibar uh, of Parsi uh, heritage. Other than that, there were no people of African or Asian heritage that were featured on the 100 list. Um, we felt uh, that it was, um, you know, a, a, a serious omission, um, a serious um, uh, exclusion of the contributions, historical and contemporary, of uh, African people, African and Caribbean people, who've been, in, who have uh, lived, have have uh, been in this country, in Britain, certainly since, in in terms of a continuous presence since uh, the 16th century, since the Tudor period, possibly even before. And certainly there's plenty of archeological evidence to, to, to determine, to prove that there are African people living in Britain, certainly as far back as the Roman period. And certainly there was a presence here in the medieval period. So we um, set about Patrick, uh, it was Patrick's uh, idea. It was he that was actually uh, inspired to amass, to put together a list of 100 uh, African and Caribbean people throughout history and contemporary to that period uh, to, to demonstrate that they, uh, the BBC could have easily and um, could have easily included uh, African or Caribbean people in the list. But what it also told us that it was about wider discussions around the, the, the erasures within British history, treat the treatment of history, uh, of British history, I should say, as a really kind of a very narrow uh, narrative, a narrow historical narrative that didn't seem to have room uh, for people of African uh, heritage. So the, the, the conception of 100 Great Black Britons was born uh, in that period. And so a list was put together, Patrick uh, uh, asked me to assist with the researching and writing of the different 100 profiles. And we created a national campaign of our own uh, to get people to nominate their greatest Black Britain. Mm. Thank you. I think it's interesting the way that in the book you talk about the criteria you used to select your list and how it was different from uh, the 100 Great Britain's list. And you talked about resilience uh, as one of the criteria and resistance. So I'm wondering, uh, because your book spans such a large span of time, so there's nominees from the 16th century and before, and as well as uh, nominees from today, like Stormzy. So I'm wondering, across time, do you see a common theme in the way that these nominated individuals um, have persevered in their careers and their lives? Uh, and is it different? Is the path to success different now than it has been in the past? And with some of the earlier nominees? Um, hi, everyone. Hi, Patrick. Uh, hi there. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting because um, when we did the list back in 2004, our focus was actually making the case that black people existed and we were there. So, we were looking for the first person, like the first, you know, black person to play for the English football team. First black person to do this, first black person. To me, we're, just, we're looking the first of to make that. That was a argument we were making 17 years ago. So when we decided to put together the new campaign, which is reflected in the book, 
we moved away from the first. It wasn't. It's not good enough to be the first. It was about how have you used your privilege as a black professional or whatever you are in the sector that we were looking at to make a difference for the community. Uh, and this is really, really important. So that's why some people have said, how come this person's not in the book or that person's in the book? Because we had a particular set of criterias uh, why we were doing that. But there is a, there is a golden thread in all, in all the people that were featured. Um, even though it's a, you know, the, work, the book is like a biographical historical book, uh, I, could, I think the book could easily be on the shelf around self-help and motivation, because if you were to read, read the bios, you would see that people have overcome barriers, obstacles, but, and that's, that's a common factor for everyone. Uh, secondly, I think, um, and it doesn't really matter if they were in the 18th century or even today, all the people that we have featured are, have worked hard to the top of their profession or the top of their the field of work that they're, they're, they've been involved in. All of them have put themselves above the line and, and all of them have, have um, used their privilege in a way to make a difference. So that is consistent with, all, with lots of the people that we have featured in the book, um, to me, in many ways. Interesting. And I noticed in the book that you talk of, talked about the lack of Black history education in the UK and the emergence of supplementary schools to help educate people about these histories. Um, what work has been done to impact schools in the UK? Can you talk a little bit more about uh, potential changes to the curricula that you have seen or that you would like to see uh, in conjunction with books like this? Um, um, the work in terms of um, changing um, the curriculum uh, unfortunately remains uh, uh, at snail's pace. It's still um, a, still a, a moment of uh, continued negotiation, the continued back and forth uh, between not only this uh, current government, but uh, preceding uh, governments, both conservative and, and Labour governments. Um, what people have tended to do, as you uh, alluded to in your question, is people, supplementary schools, which started in the 1960s by African-Caribbean parents who were extremely concerned at the, the, at the education their children were receiving uh, in schools back then. They started these supplementary schools as a way to make sure that their children were conscious of their own history and heritage, which was sadly lacking um, in, in, in schools at that time. Many of these schools continue to do the work that they do. I'm associated certainly and worked with uh, one up in my own area where I live in South London. Um, what uh, teachers also do is that um, many teachers have chosen to incorporate the history of Black Britons into their, their history teaching, um, regardless of whether it's um, uh, um, itemised in the national curriculum. Um, so there, uh, there's always been those, those individuals that are uh, doing the work. And um, often uh, with, for example, when people do projects that are heritage lottery funded, they're often attached to these projects around Black history and heritage education packs that are created and developed. So there's a lots and lots of material out there that teachers can um, rely on to incorporate um, history into uh, history of Black Britons into the, into the history teaching. 
um, at this point, it still remains uh, elective. It's not compulsory. Uh, so uh, this is this is where we are. It's not written into the, into the national curriculum. There has been uh, some great work that's been done by wonderful teachers uh, that's been introduced and professors that's been introduced recently around the history of migration. So there's a lot that's been done around looking about uh, um, the, the movement of, of, of Windrush, of Windrush um, generation uh, individuals. So while there is no sort of official uh, gov um, government um, acceptance or introduction of Black British history being taught in schools as a compulsory element of the history uh, part of the national curriculum, people do continue to, um, to teach uh, Black British history. Many people do. But as, as I said, it continues to be a, a challenge in terms of getting convincing uh, Department of Education to introduce it as a, as a compulsory element. Mm. Yeah, I think this, yeah, this book it really does take a step forward in that direction. It's very interesting discussions of politicians, um, athletes, doctors, uh, and their different paths towards uh, success. And speaking of Windrush, uh, Patrick, I know you've been pivotal in addressing the Windrush scandal and supporting mm -hmm. mental health initiatives in the Black community. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, the Windrush scandal uh, is still slightly ongoing, but I mean, I suppose because of the work I've been doing work with Angie over the years around documenting the, the black presence through the 100 Great Black Britons and, and other projects I've been involved in around oral history. So um, um, it's given, you know, it gives you, I think history is important, I think, for, the, for people online, your students. Um, if you have a sense of history and you do your research work along with backed up with oral histories and stuff like that, it gives you a sense of confidence when you. We start to become a campaigner, an activist, because you know what you're talking about. It does help. Mm. Um, uh, so, because I knew that history, and then plus I, I was involved, uh, I met some of the women, people that were caught up in the your scandal, sharing me their lived experience of how they were treated by the Home Office. And I just joined the dots. That's all I did, you know. And that's what we've done with Hungry Black Britain. We've just, we've just joined the dots. There's nothing kind of magical or innovative. It's just joining the dots, and then you make the case that this is the issue, these are the concerns. So when I joined the dots to recognise in the history of the immigration policy, immigrant history of legislation, and then the history of unjust treatment, I just joined the dots and then launched a, a, a petition, a campaign for amnesty for the Windrush generation, because essentially the government was saying to the Windrush generation, or the children who came to Britain uh, undocumented, they were still British, uh, but the government said, you haven't got documentation, so therefore you're not British, you're legal immigrants. And, and so that was the crux of the whole issue around the hostile environment policy. And so I simply said, they were British in the first place, so why are you taking away their status? And that's why I did the petition around amnesty. And I deliberately used the word amnesty because if I said, this is a campaign to regularise the status of, of people already British, then people will say, huh, what are you talking about? I don't understand that. So if you, but if you use the word amnesty, it provokes a reaction. It provokes an uh, emotional reaction about something. Something's wrong here. Why, you know? And it, I suppose it worked because obviously, I mean, there's other things. There were other factors. There was Amelia Gentleman who's writing, profiling um, the Windrushes in her for a good eight nine months in the Guardian on the, on a regular basis. There were organisations such as JCWI, Liberty, uh, and other cam and other and lawyers <coughs> raising their concerns on the impact of hostile environment as well. 
And then you had the Caribbean diplomats raising their concerns regarding the impact of the hostile environment. I mean, but it's only when I launched a petition that it, it, it crystallised and there was then called the Windrush scandal because I used the word the Windrush generation, a word that came from the work of the Windrush Foundation led by Sam King and Arthur Torrington who have been promoting the history of the Windrush generation. And I just used that as part of the campaign, uh, basically. And then that, and that kind of then led to a public reaction because I think the average person in Britain said, hold on, these people are British. Why is the government treating them in a shoddy way? And that's why I think it, had, it, it went beyond just simply the black community. It became a scandal, a national and even international scandal. I can remember being interviewed by CNN uh, and they said to me, Patrick, how would you explain the Windrush scandal to Americans? I said, yeah, very simple. It's like Donald Trump saying to the Italians, the Poles, go back home. What would be the reaction if you were told second, third generation Italians and Poles and Irish to go back home? That is a wonderful scandal in America. That's a great summary and interesting. So along that same line, staying on that theme, wondering, so I'm, I'm from the States uh, with Guyanese roots um, and reading this book has been fascinating to understand uh, Black British history. What is unique, What makes Black British identity unique as opposed to uh, other Black identities uh, globally? Um, I suppose, I think it's the history, um, our history in terms of uh, enslavement and colonization. Um, it's, it's a theme in terms of how we are, how our experience is often um, underpinned by that, often usually always underpinned by that history. Now, for example, when you talk about the Windrush scandal, it, you know, it's been uh, discovered that the Windrush scandal wasn't didn't just happen. It didn't just happen as a consequence of the hostile environment immigration policy that was established, I think, in 2012 or 2014. From the moment that people decided to leave the Caribbean and settle in, uh, in the UK after the Second World War, there was a concerted effort for that not to happen. Um, despite the establishment of the 1948 Nationality Act, which was uh, Britain's way of trying to keep uh, its empire together or even its Commonwealth together because it was inviting uh, people from its, uh, from its former colonies as they were slowly losing them to, uh, to live in, in Britain, to help rebuild Britain after the Second World War. People from the Caribbean were actually not invited. They were excluded from that, but they couldn't actually say, we actually don't want people from the Caribbean to come here. So, um, so if you read policy of home office policy, immigration policy from that period, you'll know that they did not want people to come here. So, and, and that's sort of um, ex exemplified, not only in that act, but the subsequent immigration acts that followed, the 1962 Immigration Act, 1971, the 1982, they all uh, cons uh, consistently place further, further restrictions on the movement of people from the Caribbean and from Africa. So it's not, and, and, and then if you go even further back, for example, um, when, for, when there was the First World War, um, mm -hmm. thousands of Caribbean men wanted to serve in the First World War. Uh, the British did not want them. The British uh, Imperial government did not want them to serve um, for a whole range of reasons. 
um, mainly because uh, main reason being they wanted they considered the war to be a white man's war. And they did not want um, black men to hold guns um, to be armed. And consequently, when they eventually did allow uh, the 16,000 men of the British West Indies Regiment to serve in the First World War, the vast majority of them were employed in sort of labor, labor troops. They did not, uh, they were not engaged in combat. So the history um, of, of, of Caribbean people, which is underpinned by slavery, slavery and colonialism means that it's, it's been, there's always been this sort of tension and um, this tension, certainly um, people who, the Caribbean population, African Caribbean population in Britain, certainly since post-war, let's say, um, has been under, underlied by this tension that has been sort of manifested itself in a whole range of different um, series of, of inequalities and discriminations that people uh, continue to uh, campaign against. And um, so our, it's, um, I, t I taught, uh, this past uh, term, earlier term before this new term started, a, a course on Black Britain, and I called it Struggles and Triumphs, because it is a history of struggle. Uh, it's a continued history of struggle. And everything that I sort of studied and read and presented to my students showed me that um, in terms of when we're thinking about, going back to your earlier question about criteria, the yeah, criteria, definitely. for example, for the Great Britons, um, that, uh, that BBC, um, uh, BBC campaign really sort of brought out a lot of people that people are very familiar with. Winston Churchill, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, Captain Cook, Queen Elizabeth I, all these periods that really sort of um, glorify sort of empire, okay, or beginnings of empire. So, uh, an exploration these, these, these so-called great and good. So I felt that, you know, we both felt that this criteria could not, is not applicable to, to, our, um, to our, uh, our, our, our narrative. Our narrative is one of struggle. So once we are over, able to transcend certain barriers and transcend certain struggles, I felt that that's what sort of identifies person as a great black Briton. Um, because of the, the consistent barriers that we have to overcome uh, as part of our, our lived experience and our lived reality. Interesting. And I'm wondering, so you both mentioned uh, in different ways, this idea that those nominees that have been nominated have used their platform to help elevate others and their communities. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the examples of uh, nominees who have used their platform as well. And also, if you do know, uh, what have been the reactions of those who have been nominated? Uh, has, have, how their reactions to being nominated uh, led to potential uh, new progress forward? Okay, so I mean, I mean, there are quite a few people in the book that we've talked about, about how they've used their privilege and experiences. So, I mean, I mean, I'm sure Angie, we've got, I mean, the question you're asking, the question we have is saying, who's our favourites? That's what, what it boils down to. Yeah. <laughs> who, who, who do you think we, so, I mean, I mean, I've got personal favourites and, you know, I'm sure Angie will share hers. Mm -hmm. um, but before I answer that question, um, it's important to recognise that we did a campaign in 2004. We've brought, we launched a brand new campaign in 2020. So the people that's not featured in the new campaign and in the book are still great black Britons and the book the, the campaign of 2020 which is reflected in the book 
tells you that uh, Britain has, the black experience has changed. It's like a barometer of the here and now. If we were to literally use the same people that we featured 17 years ago, we'd be heavily criticised for saying nothing's changed. There's no new role models. Where, does, where do people fit in that? So we have to reflect that people have moved on, but people that were featured um, 2004. So, for example, Zadie Smith um, was featured in 2004. She's not in the book and its latest campaign because there's no other writers. But she's still a great Black Britain. But we have to we have to go with the time. I mean, ideally, this should be like volume two. Maybe we should have that volume one. Or it's a bit like, like Hollywood. You have a pre sequel. How would that work, Angie? Could we do a, could we do a pre sequel? Well, I don't see why not. <laughs> you know, maybe we have to do that, talk to our publishers, can we do a pre-sequel? But there are some people, um, I mean, for me personally, one of my uh, favourites um, is Bernie Grant, the late Bernie Grant MP for Tottenham. Um, and uh, I'm lucky, I'm a vice chair of the Bernie Grant Trust, and the Bernie Grant Trust looks after, ha, looks after the, has a custodianship of his archives. His archives are kept at the Bishopsgate Institute in the, um, in uh, Liverpool Street, uh, in London, and uh, his, if you look, at, if he goes to his archives, it, which obviously it's about his life, but it's about all the things he did as an activist, heavily involved in the trade union movement, the trade unionists, his work as a leader of Harringay Council, and and then become the MP for Harringay, and all the work that he did in Harringay on Broadwater Farm, Stop and Search, then his in, then his international work, his you know his campaign around reparations. His campaigns around um, greater fostering greater relationships between African Americans and the Black British community. He went to America quite a few times, met with the Congressional con 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 Caucus, and, and, and you know, did the same thing in Africa, did the same thing in the Caribbean. He, did, he spent a lot of time doing work in Europe. Uh, so he went ten times over and beyond um, in terms of his privilege. And one of the, and one of the things I forgot to mention, by the way. A lot of people that we featured died. Most of them didn't reach sixty. A lot mm -hmm. of people have died because of, of, and this is one of the consequences when you're pushing yourself or you're campaigning or you're doing something in your profession. It has an impact on your life expectancy. You know, this is really important. I mean, Bernie Grant died just over in his early fifties. Yeah. Um, same, same with Claudia Jones. Some, a number of people died in their 40s and 50s. And, you know, so this, that's why, and that's why their, their achievements in a short space of time that they're, they're on this planet is even more significant as well. Uh, I, I could go on and talk about other people. I'll, I'll let Andy um, talk about her face. Yeah, who are your favorites or who would you like to see at a dinner party? Okay, so um, I um, would just like to say, first of all, uh, Jeff, you mentioned at the beginning of the talk that you have Guyanese roots. You have your family's from Guyana. Okay, so uh, you may or may not know, um, for example, the social theorist, Paul Gilroy, uh, his mother were, was from Guyana, the Guyanese, and she was Beryl Gilroy, leading uh, psychotherapist and author. So I'll just uh, put that out there. But, uh, she, she also, I would say, is a, a great Britain. Um, so just, just to throw that out there, if you didn't know about uh, uh, Dr. Beryl Gilroy. So um, did you did you know about her? I did not, actually, yeah. Okay, so well, that's, uh, uh, Paul Gilroy's mother um, uh, came here from Guyana in 1951. Um, so um, you asked about my own uh, personal... Uh, I, have, I have so many... Um, uh, I, I, I tend to sort of refer, I, I, who I love is Olive Morris, uh, to invite to a, a dinner party and, and Claudia Jones. 
um, both um, are uh, personally, are personally my personal heroines. Um, when I, I read about both of them, I read um, Carol Boyce Davis's Left of Karl Marx, which is such an excellent political biography of um, Claudia Jones. And just to look at her own sort of political um, development as from a young child who first got involved in the case against the Scottsboro Boys in the 1930s. These were young African-American boys who had been accused of raping white women and, and they had um, been been sentenced, I think, to death and they had been this huge campaign. So that was one of the early campaigns that she got involved in. She was a very um, key um, member of the Communist Party of the United States um, and saw uh, the sort of links between how communism could help um, African-American women and the poor uh, in, in in terms of their own, um, not only self-actualization, but also their political development, helping them to 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 um, to to, for, to develop their own agency. She was deported from uh, um, the United States because of her communist activities. And she, as I said, she was a leading leading member. She was an editor of, of their magazines. Uh, she was really a big, big, uh, important leading figure. Um, she, um, during the McCarthy era, she was deported to the to the United Kingdom because she was born in Trinidad, and so she was part a British subject, um, officially a British subject. They felt that she would have uh, be be able to be monitored more closely if she was in the UK. Uh, she hit the ground running in the UK by immediately seeing it was another site of struggle. Um, she saw that people who had been arriving from the Caribbean and settling in the UK in the 1950s were ha really having a really difficult time with the colour bar, with discrimination in housing, uh, education, employment, and started one of uh, the, the West India Gazette and uh, Asian Times uh, in 1950, in 19, I think early 1959. Um, and also uh, is the uh, one of the creators of the first manifestation of the Notting Hill Carnival, um, have ho hosting it in St Pancras Town Hall in January of 1959. Because she also not only was she thought that it was important to have um, po po politics was important, but culture, one's uh, celebration of one's culture is also important. So there are all these different things that need to come together in terms of our own sort of well-being. It's um, as, as Patrick has mentioned, it's a knowledge of our own history and heritage, uh, our, our culture, knowing our culture, um, having um, good political uh, activism, good people around you. These kinds of things are helping with our, uh, our well-being, especially when we are in this kind of environment for want of a better word, a hostile environment, certainly as it as it was uh, for many people in the 19, in 1940s and 1950s, and even earlier than that, because we know that there were communities here in the 1930s, but actually I said, as I said, a continuous presence since the 16th century. So okay. she would be, she's totally uh, a, a heroine of mine who I admire greatly. Uh, as well as I said, Olive Morris, who tragically died uh, of cancer at age 27, but packed so much into her, into those 27 years, um, becoming such a, a leading um, uh, activist, a grassroots activist in uh, Brixton in South London, where she was, grew up. She wasn't born, she was born in Jamaica, and also in Manchester, where she uh, was doing her degree in the University of Manchester, um, starting the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, 
um, many of the members that left uh, of that group have gone on to do wonderful, wonderful work, such as Suzanne Scaife and Stella's Dadzi, um, uh, become our, what we call them, uh, scholar activists. Um, uh, so the, 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 her legacy of, uh, of working with, with women, um, just ordinary women in helping them navigate, um, uh, navigate their own lives uh, in, the, in the 1970s um, is incredibly inspirational to me. Okay, excellent. I think, yeah, I think that's a definitely a good place for readers to start once they do pick up the book. Great, so thanks definitely for these insightful first comments. Now we'll transition to taking some questions from the audience, so I'll read those to you all. Looks like we have a few questions on the same theme, and uh, this is 100 Great Black Britons. I think it seems like some are curious about, uh, so there's one question from uh, Arola who says, uh, there's, there's been 100 selected, but there are over 1,000 nominations. Uh, is there a place where others can access the other 900 nominations and then related to that, uh, Jeremy Zimmerman asks, who is number one in the book? So you don't explicitly make a ranking, uh, but two questions related. Uh, can people access the full list of a thousand nominations and who would you say is number one? Well, yes, I mean, the book, at, towards the end of the book, we have listed all the nominees, all the thousand, as well as the uh, list from the 2004 campaign as well. So it's all there in the book. It's there in all good bookshops, like Pages, so get the book. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the answer. Get the book, and then you'll know. Uh, so uh, but when, so when, when we did the campaign 17 years ago, we were kind of replicating what BBC did. So we had a public nomination, public vote. We ranked people, we had a rank order, and people voted for Mary Seacole. As the greatest Black Britain of all time, so we had so British. So he's like Mary Seacole, Winston Churchill, take your pick. Um, this time round, we didn't do that. We we just focused on nominees. We didn't put them in any particular rank order at all. So because we wanted to recognise that all of them were great. I mean, even the people that didn't make the cut um, are still great. You know, I mean, the book could have been called a thousand or two thousand, five thousand um, great Black Britons, but you know, we had limitations in terms of time. And also the concept itself, but you know, my answer to anyone, you know, we don't have the monopoly on this, by the way. So if you want to do your own book and campaign, and, and people have done that. When, after the last campaign we did, there was a whole creation of lists and of people in different se sectors and professions. So if that inspires people to do more research work, that's fantastic. That's great. Just do it. You know, we'll support me in some. If you have time, we like we can support you. But that's what we've done. Uh, and I'm sure people in each sector, you could, in each sector of the economy, you could easily have a hundred in, in, in law, in medicine, uh, in politics, in civil society, in engineering, you name it. You could have individuals, you know, and, some, and there have been some lists covering, covering those sectors uh, as well. Okay, excellent. And we have a question from Owet and at Cambridge. And they say that they work, I work in diversity and inclusion. How could you imagine diversity and inclusion practitioners like myself utilizing the book to spark conversation or create real change in the workplace? It's um, interesting. Go, go ahead, Andre, sorry. Oh, no, no, you go on, go on Patrick, please. No, no, you, after you. I was, I was just gonna, going to say that within, um, within the book, they're, they're all profiles. They're profiles of different individuals about their 
but it's not merely a bio, their biography. I've tried, what I have done, I haven't tried to, I have put them in their context, in their social, political and cultural context. So for example, you have, I did a profile on Dame Sharon White. Now, prior to her becoming chair of the John Lewis Group, she was a leading, she was a very senior civil servant. Okay, so as a senior civil servant, I wanted to understand how many people, African heritage, African and Caribbean heritage, are senior civil servants. Uh, and there are very, very few. There are lots of civil, lots of um, African Caribbean people working in the civil service, but most, the vast majority of them are in very junior, uh, junior levels. So that's a question you can ask yourself um, in terms of diversity and inclusion. Those are the questions you ask. What can we do, for example, to attract or to support uh, people within the civil service, for example, to help them, to support them to move up to move up from being maybe a junior up to a very to, to very senior positions. So if people are conscious of what the situation is, then maybe they can have these more uh, more important discussions about how to make their workplace uh, more inclusive. So just to add on and build on what Andrew said, I, I do a lot of work around the cause of diversity. I've been advising organisations. So I see the book, like other books that have come out, like Carla's book, like Rennie Lodge's book, like Afia Hirsch's book and Dave Olusu. It's a resource. It's a resource that people can use around having those difficult conversations around lack of representation at senior level. Uh, that's the first thing. I think it's also a conversation about people's lived experiences. And one of the key issues particularly around black staff working in any sector, um, is that they have to deal with microaggressions, they're being held back in their career development, and, and, the, and people want to be inspired, and hopefully the book will inspire people, and some, of the, and some of the people that were featured in the book actually have done talks and speaking engagements, sharing their own experiences around navigation uh, as well. So I hope the book, could, I said before, the book could be on the self-help shelf also around motivation and, and lessons uh, as well. So hopefully it could be used in that way, but I think it could be a resource to have those conversations as well. Excellent. And I see a related question. So from Francesca, an LSC alumna, who asks uh, to both, and especially Dr. Osborne, uh, will there be an end to this toxic environment from racism, discrimination, and leaving black history out of the curriculum? Um, I'll, I'll tack on my own end to that conversation. How do you see this book speaking to uh, the protests against racial injustice of this new generation um, in that sense as well. So do you see an end, so the question being, do you see an end to uh, this racism and in terms of curriculum and then also in terms of activism in the modern day? Um, no, <laughs> I don't. Um, I think at the, end, at the end of the day, I hate that, that, <laughs> that comment, the, the onus isn't on us to, to make the changes. The onus, I feel, is on the people who are in control of, you know, the, the um, make white people. I think it's really down, about down to them. Um, um, activism will, will, not, will not end. Um, uh, I've, I read a book recently uh, by Ibram Kendi called um, Stamped from the Beginning. Uh, it's about the history of racist ideas in the United States. And, and in, the, in the introduction, he talks about 
racism is, as anti-racism evolves, so does racism. They both evolve and they change and they, they, they take on different forms, especially racism takes on many different forms that we have to learn to identify and to dismantle. And um, that, that's the challenge that we, we face uh, today is that, the, that, that racism and racist thought tends to manifest and evolve into things that we do not appear to be obviously uh, racist um, ideas. So that's the challenge that, that we have um, in terms of activism. Activism is the, the, our, our best hope and best uh, defense, I feel. Um, we are in it for the long haul. It may not happen in our lifetimes, uh, even though that might sound like a really depressing thing, but the, I sometimes feel that the the the, the one of the the, the the most hopeful thing is that as long as we're alive, as long as we uh, have uh, are living, that we can continue to challenge uh, what's what's uh, challenge uh, what's happening. Uh, so um, yeah, that's really my answer. We just we have to just keep on keeping on, really. Oh, I've, what I've done, I'm not going to answer that question because I've actually written a whole blog on this issue around fighting for our rights, traumatisation and mental health. So I've just put it into the chat. I've just written it for Policy Press and please read and see what you think. Excellent. Yeah, so Patrick has posted uh, his answer to that in the chat or his article relating to that in the chat. Uh, www.transformingsociety.co.uk. Excellent. Yeah, we are tired. We're fatigued. We're tired. Hmm. And I have a question from Avarina, who says, uh, beyond resilience, what are the other common qualities, behaviors, or skills shared across the top 100? And do you think that there are new skills required of young Black Britons compared to the prior generation? I, mean, I think I, I, I gave some examples of the golden thread, the qualities, but I think... If, what could you learn if you if you're a young person? And I mean, actually, there's some people that you can learn from who are in the book. If you look at Stormzy, um, Lewis Hamilton, for example, you know they've used their not, not only have they use their privilege, they've actually used it in a way to raise issues around race. I mean, you know, for someone like Lewis Hamilton, maybe it may if we did the book maybe five six years ago, campaign five, it may it may not have been featured, even though it was still. A world top racing driver. Uh, it's not. It's not enough being a world top racing driver. It's how you use privilege. He is one that is work. He is one of the most elite sports in the world. Literally, it's a it's a multimillionaire's toy to have those fast cars. You know what I mean? He's mm -hmm. in that space, and the very fact that he can raise issues around race and discrimination in that space, no different to Naomi Campbell in the fashion world. Um, and people might think, oh, you know, they're out there making money and stuff like that. Yeah, of course, that's side of it. But the very fact they're actually raising those issues, um, and like Naomi Campbell, she was heavily, I mean, I can remember Piers Morgan called her a chocolate soldier years ago. I don't even remember that. No, a, really derogatory, a really derogatory expression, basically, you know, you know. But she's been campaigning behind the scenes for many years around racism in the fashion world. And so has Lewis Hamilton. So yeah, so I think one of the key lessons that we can learn is you don't have to make loads of money and have a celebrity status like like Big Brother House and all those TV reality shows. You still can make a difference in your space, no matter how it's limited in that space. So I think that's a key lesson that we can learn. I mean, 
if you compare them to the likes of Equiano, he didn't have that platform. He was. Not, I don't think. Maybe correct me, Angela. Was it ever? Was there Equiano actually invited into Parliament to make a presentation? No, he was never invited, but he always attended. He reg he and other um, black political activists. They collectively called themselves the Sons of Africa. They regularly uh, attended the parliamentary debates around the abolition of the slave trade. They regularly would read about um, what was going on in the Caribbean, what was going on in Africa. They were extraordinarily well informed. They would write to sympathetic. Uh, MPs, sympathetic people who were uh, attached to politics. Um, so that was the type of, you know, he used um, uh, his platform uh, in 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 remarkable ways. When you consider that, even in that period, in that in that period, that it that the, the the position of an African in Britain was extraordinarily precarious, in terms of the fact that if a person, if a white person decided they wanted to just kidnap you and put you on a ship bound for the colonies, for the West India colonies, they could do that. Um, so, you know, Equiano always carried his freedom papers with him all the time. And I imagine all uh, people, free people who lived in Britain, black people lived in Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries, carried their papers with them to prove that they, And but sometimes, it didn't even matter. It wasn't even, it was irrelevant, but uh, whether you had them or not, people would take you anyway. And it's only if you had the presence of mind to contact somebody who was, uh, uh, if you had somebody like a Granville Sharp, who always wanted to take, uh, 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 argue the status of people, uh, African people in Britain, somebody was going to um, contact uh, the authorities to make sure that it didn't happen. It did happen. So, uh, uh, Equiano uh, is an extraordinary uh, individual living in, a, in, in an era where the, 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 the position of black people was so precarious uh, uh, that he and, and what he was able to accomplish within, within that space, how he was able to, to adapt and to accomplish so much is really quite remarkable. I think it can't really can't be overstated um, how remarkable um, Equiano and others like him were. Hmm. Along those same lines, since we have two uh, experts on the history here, uh, let me ask this question from Annette, who says, uh, could you discuss the history of the British colonies and slavery? And then related to that, in the US, there's an assumption that if people like Kamala Harris has Black Caribbean roots, that does not mean they're descendants of slaves. So uh, the question is about history of slavery in the British colonies, and then also about uh, Caribbean identity in relation to uh, the Black identity. Okay, so that's a really, really big subject. You have to be a bit more specific about what you want me to talk about uh, yeah. in slavery mm -hmm. in British colonies. But except to, well, I'll just say that, you know, um, Britain uh, started to uh, acquire uh, colonies in, um, in the Caribbean in the early 17th century um, after seeing um, the, the, how, how fabulously wealthy and powerful countries like Spain and Portugal uh, were becoming. And like other European countries, they wanted, to, they wanted a slice of that. Certainly 15, I think 1562 to 64 were the first voyages by Hawkins uh, during the Elizabethan era into the capture and enslavement of African people. But they really started to really kick it off in, in the 17th century, which was first underwritten and supported and financed by the royal family. Okay, so James the first, 
James mm-hmm. the uh, Charles the first, the second James the first, and and then and and subsequent monarchs after. Um, so yeah, it's it's such a such a huge, mm-hmm. a huge subject. We're talking about um, the Caribbean being in a literal state of war from that per- uh, from within and from without. Um, without that, I mean um, other. European uh, other European powers attempting to take take those those uh, colonies uh, during times of conflict, but also uh, from within uh, because um, enslaved people uh, did not uh, accept their condition um, uh, passively. There were constant rebellions and revolts and attempts to take the lives of 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 white white uh, white colonists uh, consistently throughout the period. Of, of enslavement, as well as in places like Jamaica and Suriname, uh, you had the Maroons, uh, which you know they caused a heck of a lot of trouble for for the authorities in both of those colonies. So, um, so yeah, you're asking. Uh, I can't in in thirty seconds or a minute say more than that. But the, in terms of the question of Kamala Harris. Uh, mother is uh, from from was from India, I understand, and her father was an economist from Jamaica. So of course, <laughs> as her father was from Jamaica, he is the descendant or was the descendant of enslaved Caribbean Jamaicans, Caribbean Africans. There's no real dispute there. Um, if somebody's saying that that she is not, she is not uh, has not got uh, enslaved ancestry, then they really don't understand the, the the history of Jamaica. They don't understand the history of the Caribbean. Uh, because these were not uh, societies with slaves, they were slaves societies. They were, you know, the majority um, of people who lived in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, um, Jamaica, for example, um, uh, black people outnumbered white people something like 16 to 1. Okay, so, uh, and that's that's it. That's the, that's the deal yeah. with Kamala Harris, yeah? Yeah. Can, can I add to that, that, that about Kamala Harris? If we look at the history of, uh, African Americans, um, there has been that relationship between a lot of people from the Caribbean going to America at the turn of the last century, especially to places like Harlem and Philadelphia, uh, and you know, and all the kind of African Americans that you talk about who are great, they've all got Caribbean ancestors. You know, and you have this Americanization process. Once you arrive in America, everyone's American. It's not different in Britain. You have to kind of justify that you're British. But in America, everyone's American, more or less, apart from indigenous First Nation people, the way they're treated. But that's not a story. But everyone's American. Yeah, so, Malcolm X's mother yeah, was from Grenada. Yeah, yeah, Malcolm X. I mean, actually, if you were to look at the the, 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 the key heroes and sheroes of African-American history, they've all got Caribbean roots, basically, you know, first, second, third generation. Basically, and then, and for even the most successful African Americans, um, you know, like um, I think I, I met um, the person that runs um, um, Howard University. He's got Caribbean roots. The everyone's got Caribbean roots in America, but you know, because they speak with American accents, they automatically think they're all American. But there's a very strong relationship between Caribbean and influence. And if you look at the history of the Harlem Renaissance. Heavily influenced by Caribbean people, no, you know, okay. no two ways about it, big time. You know what I mean? So I think we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think it's sometimes unclear how those links uh, were spread. And so we have a related question from Annette that says, uh, I'll break down, pick one part of the question. Uh, 
Can you speak to this moment of converging pandemics as a critical catalyst for us across the diaspora to, re to reimagine Pan-African futures that center around human dignity, dignity and equity? So can you speak to the pandemic uh, in relation to the diaspora? That sounds like a good question for an essay. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Isn't it? I mean, discuss. I mean, that is brilliant. Maybe that should be the next uh, Zoom call. Maybe now, seriously, that is a hmm. that's a that's a big it's a big topic. I mean, I'm into Afrofuturism. I don't know if you anyone to Sunrise, George Clinton, all that kind of stuff. Janelle uh, Murray. You know, I think what you talk to me. If I was looking at that question, is what kind of future do we want to imagine? And uh, and obviously, if you look at the, the Pan African project, which happened a lot of it was happening in London. Again, we featured quite a few people in the book that were involved in that Pan African project, like George Padmore, and, and others in you know in the book. Um, um, that was a project was that was emerging in in Britain in interwar years because people came over from Africa. They came over from like, London was like a melting pot, a metropolis of of talent, black talent from from uh, the Caribbean and from Africa. And everyone was saying, hold on, we want independence. So that was the start of that independence. But if you kind of roll the clock now forward uh, in terms of the, the, the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic, um, I had a phone call this morning from a good friend of mine and she said, Patrick, don't take, the, don't, don't take that COVID drug when it comes to market, don't touch it. Because there's African that has already designed uh, an anti-COVID drug from, from Madagascar, but he's not been given the recognition. So this is another conversation that everyone's having on, you know, uh, about how do we create our own futures? How do we have our own autonomy? And obviously the big issue for Africa is um, that the pandemic hasn't hit Africa in a way compared to America and Britain and Brazil, you know, um, because people are, you know, with limited resources, are still many are able to keep it down. I mean, something's been a bit draconian. What's been happening? Let's face it, in South Africa, what, and more recently, what's been happening in Nigeria? Very draconian. What's been happening there? But it's about what kind of future do we want to imagine? That, that I think that's that's the key question that we need to ask ourselves. Again, going back to the book, a lot of people that we featured in the book were, were having a world view of where did black people fit in the world. And that is an ongoing conversation that we still need to have, basically. Great. So I see we have, we're almost wrapping up. So I'll just give a few rapid fire questions we have about the book. So the first is, will you produce learning resources for children or young people based on the book? Uh, and also, will, are you pushing to have your book uh, taught in school curriculums? Uh, definitely yes to the second one. The second question, we there is a campaign that's that was spearheaded by uh, is spearheaded by Yvonne Davis, a former um, head teacher. Uh, she started a GoFundMe campaign to uh, raise enough money to have uh, 100 Great Black Britons in every, I believe it's every secondary school, yeah. um, every secondary school in in the UK. Uh, at this moment of speaking. Uh, Lambeth Council purchased enough books, I think well over 100 books to put in, in every in every school in their in the in their borough in the schools in their borough. So that's an, uh, um, an ongoing sort of campaign that we hope that will come to real really good fruition. Children's book that's definitely a, I think there's scope for that, isn't there, Patrick? There's scope absolutely, for yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, the feedback we've had already is how can that book be made? I mean into a children's book for different key stages. How can you have a nice colour, make it colourful images? So preschool stage, preschool stage one to four. So obviously it's a conversation we need to have with our publishers. 
the more you buy the book, everyone, the more that will help our case. Excellent. And so that's available uh, at stores and online. Uh, is that right? Yes, that's right. Lots of uh, independent uh, bookshops are stocking it, as well as the major um, books, book, uh, bookshops as well. So um, certainly buy the book, but certainly support small book bookstores as well, please. Excellent. Well, I just want to say it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you all. And it's been a great pleasure for us to hear what you've had to say, Angelina and Patrick. Uh, thanks very much for taking part. And we're grateful for your time and your busy schedules, uh, promoting this book and doing other things. Before we sign off, remember to purchase your copy of 100 Great Black Britons from pages of Hackney website or other websites where it's available.